Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Bring our series in this epistle to a close, looking at verses 12 through 28. And as we come to read God's word and hear it preached, would you bow with me in prayer? Oh Father, would you use this weak instrument to declare your glory? to this, your body, your covenant people. Would you edify each one of us, growing us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Would you comfort the afflicted, those who acutely feel the, the pangs of, of the curse upon this good creation, who feel the, the wickedness of this present evil age? And would you afflict the comfortable, those who are relying on themselves, who are trusting in their works, in their merit, who they are, any semblance of their self-righteousness. Would you break them and bring them low? Would you cause each of us to see the glory of Jesus Christ in the pages of your word now? And may each believer here come more and more to anticipate and long for his return at the end of this age. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Now would you stand as we hear God's holy, inspired, and infallible word read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Throughout this letter, I hope you've noticed that there is a heavy emphasis upon the return of Jesus Christ. There is explicit mention of the return of Christ in every chapter of this epistle. In chapter 1, Paul says that we wait for God's Son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. At the end of chapter 2, Paul asks 
the Thessalonians, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Chapter 3, Paul prays that God would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Chapter 4, we saw that the Lord will descend from heaven with the shout, with the trump and the, the shout of the archangel. The dead in Christ will rise and we all will be with him when he returns. And now, twice in chapter 5, we see that we are to be prepared for the day of the Lord because he will surely come. And here in this passage, we see Paul's prayer that God's people be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That by a rough count is at least six instances, explicit references to the return of Christ in one brief letter. I think Paul is emphasizing that the return of Christ is important for God's people. And that is the context of our passage now. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, your life is bracketed by Christ's first and second comings. We look back to Christ's finished work in his death and resurrection from the dead when he made full atonement for sin. Now we look up, we look heavenward in living communion with Christ now, and we also look ahead awaiting his return to the consummation, the completion of our redemption in him. In this passage, we see that Paul lays out how to live between the two appearances of Christ in history, trusting in what Christ has done and awaiting what he will do, here is how we are to live in union with him. Broadly, this passage breaks down to two sections. Verses 12 to 22, Paul outlines what God's people are to do. We are to be a people of peace. Verses 23 to 28, he grounds what we are to do as a people of peace in the fact that God is a God of peace. And the main point that Paul is driving home here is that because God has made peace with sinners through Christ, God's people are to be at peace with one another. Because God has made peace with sinners through Christ, God's people are to be at peace with one another. Because of who God is and what he has done in the Lord Jesus and what he will do, here is how we are to live for his glory. First of all, we see we are to be at peace with our leaders. Look at verse 12 again. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. These leaders that Paul speaks of are biblical officers, those who hold office in Christ's church, and that is pastors, elders, and deacons. And I make no mention of the two office versus the three office debate here. Officers in Christ's church those who preach the word, those who administer the sacraments, those who govern Christ's church, and those who meet the mercy needs of that church. These leaders are worthy of the respect and the love of God's people. As verse 13 says, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I found that many Presbyterians do not understand Presbyterianism. If we're going to be members of Christ's church, I think it stands to reason that we should know something about that church, about that church for which Christ died. And what is one, we could ask, what is one basic reason 
that God's people should honor the officers of Christ's church, other than the fact that God explicitly commands it here. Well, to answer that question, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Keep your place in 1 Thessalonians and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Speaking of unity in the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, begin at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Then there's a parenthesis in verses 9 and 10. Go to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Just brief comments on this passage. Notice what verse 8 says Christ did. In his ascension, after his resurrection, Christ gave gifts to men. You see that in verse 8? He gave gifts to men. Well, what are the gifts that Christ gave to his church? Skip over the, the parenthesis, not that it's not important, but for our purposes, skip over the parenthesis in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 11. His officers... He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. He gave his officers. Some of those have expired with the, with the death of the apostles, but he gave officers as gifts to his church. That is why they deserve our love and our respect. Pastors, elders, and deacons are Christ's gift to his own bride. They preach his word to us. They rule over us under his authority, and they care for the mercy needs of his church after his example. Your pastors, your elders, and your deacons are Christ's gift to you for your edification and for his glory. They are his servants, and that is why they are worthy of our honor and of our love. Of course, they are not Christ himself. They are sinners who need grace like the rest of us but they are still worthy of honor because of the office that they hold, because of the work that they do. Think of it this way. Respect for Christ's officers is respect for Christ himself. So that's the first thing Paul mentions for us in 1 Thessalonians 5, if you want to turn back there as we move on. Back to 1 Thessalonians 5. The second thing we see are peaceful actions and attitudes. Peaceful actions and attitudes. There in verse 14, we see three ministry approaches for three different kinds of people. Look there at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Again, three different approaches for three different kinds of people. Not a one-size-fits-all approach to ministry, but as, as David Pallison says, different ways of loving appropriately. And I, I depend heavily upon him for, for the interpretation of this verse. Admonish the idle. Admonish the rebellious, the addictive, the manipulative, the deceitful, those who live in high-handed open sin. Admonish them. 
That is, be clear and direct with them. Confront them in love. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage those who think they are alone in the world. Those who are prone to fear, to anxiety, to discouragement. Encourage them. Come alongside them. Offer personal consolation in the midst of difficulties. Remind them of God's promises. Remind them that He will never leave or forsake them, all those who trust in Him. Help the weak. Help those who need ongoing help. Help those who need a lot of help. Those with significant handicap or limitation. Those who may never experience significant change in this life. Help them. Take initiative to keep helping those who need that ongoing help. Do practical things that make a difference. Accommodate to their weakness as God has accommodated to yours. And of course, be patient with them all. Don't get frustrated with how slowly someone else is changing. Be long-suffering with others as God is long-suffering with you. So these are three distinct ministry approaches for three kinds of people in the church. And of course, all of us are idle, are faint-hearted, and weak at one time or another, in one way or another. We need to be admonished. We need to be encouraged. We need to be helped. Understand these different ways to love wisely. In verses 16 through 18, we have another explicit statement about the will of God for the believer. We saw another explicit statement about what God's will is back in chapter 4, that the will of God is your holiness, your sanctification. Here we have another explicit statement about what God's will is. Look at verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Many of you will be familiar with how Corey Tinboom, in her book The Hiding Place, writes of her experiences in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. And she and her sister Betsy were taken to a concentration camp where they were forced to live in an overcrowded barracks that was infested with fleas. And apparently the morning they arrived, they read these verses. Verses 16 through 18. Betsy told her sister Corey that they needed to thank God for every part of their new arrangement, even for the, the fleas. In obedience to what we read here, we need to thank God for even the fleas. And understandably, Corey didn't want to do so. She didn't want to thank God for the fleas. How could there be anything thankworthy about this? But her sister persisted, and Corey finally gave in. Well, months later, they both were surprised to find out how freely they could have their Bible studies and prayer meetings in their barracks because the Nazi soldiers didn't want to go near where the fleas were. They didn't want to interfere. And later they found out that they could have their Bible studies and their prayer meetings openly for that reason. Initially, Corey said, how could I possibly be thankful for these fleas, this infestation where I have to sleep? And they discovered at least one reason, which was the Lord used the fleas to keep the soldiers away so they could worship freely without interference from the guards. Well, often we can ask when we read such verses, what should I do in this situation? What, what is God's will for my life? Exactly what we read here. Rejoice always, 
Rejoice in the Lord, commune with Him in prayer, and give thanks in all circumstances. And you may say, I can't give thanks. I can't rejoice in this situation. You don't know how hard it is. Then I lovingly warn you that that attitude, saying I can't do what God commands here, I can't rejoice, I can't give thanks in this situation, that attitude may show that you think you know better than God does. Corey ten Boom eventually found out a, a wonderful, wonderful provision of the Lord in having those fleas in her barracks. But even if we never see such provision, if we, even if we never see a silver lining for our suffering in this life like she did, we can still rest assured that we are being made more and more like the Savior, being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. This verse, as you, as you well may know, has been the subject of much discussion. It was the subject of discussion by a group of ministers in the 19th century, and one of those ministers was John Newton, the author of, of Amazing Grace. There were these ministers who got together to, to discuss, well, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Obviously, we can't pray 24 hours a day, every single day. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? And they gave different ideas on what, what the verse could possibly mean. And finally, one of the ministers in this group asked the young lady who was waiting on them if she knew what it meant. What do you think it means to pray without ceasing? And this young lady, this servant girl, says, yeah, that's, that's not so difficult. I get up in the morning, I get dressed, I pray, Lord, clothe me in the righteousness of Christ today. I came down, I dusted the room, and I prayed, Lord, take away the filth in my heart today. When I prepared your food for you today, I prayed, Lord, feed me with Jesus Christ. Feed me with the water of life and the bread of life today. And I just go about my day praying like that. That is what it means. I think you can, you can see. That is what it means to pray without ceasing. That continual attitude of prayer and dependence upon God. Not a literalistic 24 hours a day without ceasing, but that continual attitude of prayer and communion with the Lord. We need set times specifically just to pray, and we need to let the things around us lead us to prayer throughout our days. You have final exams this week. Lord, grant me the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. My business is not doing well. Lord, provide for me far more abundantly than all I ask or think, as you promise you would. Let the earthly things, let, let the things of earth lead you upward to heavenly things in prayer. Thirdly and finally, we see, we've seen being at peace with our leaders, peaceful actions and attitudes, and now finally, we see the God of peace in verses 23 through 28. As we've seen in this passage, we We've seen that Paul says what we are to do first, and now he gets to what God does. He gets to the commands first, and then to the promises. This shows sort of the, how, how it's backwards in its setup. We are not to work first in order to earn God's favor. That is utterly impossible. We actually go to work because God has already made us his own in Christ. He makes us his own first and then we go to work. And we work because Christ will come again. And that is part of why we work, to be prepared for his return. 
We read here of the, of the sanctifying work of, of God. Sanctification is God's work in us, and for that reason, we go and give our full effort. Shorter Catechism 35, which we just read this evening. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And it is that more and more aspect of sanctification that we see here. But we also see more than that. Notice exactly what Paul is praying in this, in this close, in this benediction to his letter. Look at verse 23, when he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And that definition, that shorter catechism definition of sanctification, re- reflecting the rest of Scripture, is that process, it is that day-by-day growth in, in God's grace. It is a more and more growth. But what Paul prays for here is that our sanctification would be complete, would be brought to completion. That is his prayer for God's people. That, as it were, the seed and the bud in this life would come to full blossom in the life to come at Christ's return. It shows that God's, God is at work in his people now, doing that more and more day-by-day work. And his work will be brought to completion at the return of Jesus Christ. And that shows how similar sanctification and glorification are. Our growth in God's grace in this life and our confirmed glory in the age to come, how similar those two things are. In fact, they're so similar that the Puritan Thomas Watson says, sanctification is heaven begun in the soul. What God has begun in our sanctification, he will bring to completion in our glorification. And as has also been said, sanctification is glorification begun. Glorification is sanctification completed. So what Paul is praying for here is the completion of our sanctification, which is the glorification of God's people. Resurrection bodies in a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Notice here that Paul speaks of God as the God of peace. God has made peace with sinners by the cross of his Son. Think of Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, speaking of the union of believing Jew and Gentile in Christ. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you know that God himself and God alone took the initiative to make peace with you in the death and resurrection of his son. And he will preserve you every step of the way until his son returns. So we see from beginning to end, from eternity past, our election in Christ Jesus, 
into eternity future or glorification, a resurrection body in a new heavens and new earth, and every, everything in between, every aspect, every part of our salvation is from God. And we know this, that God does not leave anything half done. He brings his good work to completion. As verse 24 says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Just a few points of application as we think about putting this word to work in our hearts and lives more than what we've already seen. First of all, for, for the believer, as we saw earlier, pray for your officers, pray for your pastors, your elders, and your deacons. That's a direct application of verses 12 and 13 about honoring our leaders, verse 17, to pray without ceasing, and verse 23 of growing in God's grace to completion. Pray for your officers. They are Christ's gift to you, and it behooves you if you pray for them and honor them well. Honor, honor them for what they do. Pray that they would labor in dependence upon the Lord, that they would grow in wisdom at every point for their task. And thank them for their service. They pray for you. They serve you in ways you may not even see. Thank them for their service. You have benefited from it in some way. So honor Christ by honoring the gifts he has given to his bride, his officers. And secondly, again for the believer, know that God is at work in you, and for that reason, go to work. Paul puts this well elsewhere in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, putting different words on what we see here. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who is at work in sanctification, God or the believer? Yes. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. As Richard Gaffin says, commenting on this passage, sanctification is 100% the work of God. And just for that reason, it is to engage 100% of the activity of the believer. We do not work because we need, to, we need to supplement God's work. God doesn't do everything. We need to work. It is a mysterious union where God does all and we do all. 100% the work of God, and for that reason, engages 100% of the activity of the believer. And in doing this, we look again back. We look backwards to Christ's finished work in his death and resurrection from the dead. And we look up to heaven in living vital union and communion with him until he returns. And we look forward to that day when he will return, when our sanctification will no longer be partial, but will be brought to completion. Again, the Puritan Thomas Watson says very helpfully about our sanctification. Has God brought a clean thing out of an unclean? Has he sanctified you? 
Wear this jewel of sanctification with thankfulness. Christian, you could defile yourself, but not sanctify yourself. But God has done it. He has not only chained up sin, but changed your nature and made you as a king's daughter, all glorious within. He has put upon you the breastplate of holiness, which though it may be shot at, can never be shot through. Are there any here that are sanctified? God has done more for you than millions who may be illumined but are not sanctified. He has done more for you than if he had made you the sons of princes and caused you to ride upon the high places of the earth. Are you sanctified? Heaven is begun in you, for happiness is nothing but the epitome of holiness. Oh, how thankful should you be to God. Do as that blind man in the Gospels did after he had received his sight, who followed Christ, glorifying God. Make heaven ring with God's praises. God is at work in you to do his good pleasure, and for that reason we go to work, because he is the one who is faithful, who has called us, and he will surely do it. Amen, and may God be pleased to add his blessing to the preaching of his word.